I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty, as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. Well, good morning once again, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. So uh, many years ago, you would not know this uh, to look at me right now. I was into martial arts, particularly uh, Taekwondo, because I'm tall and long legs and stuff. And I thought that that might be a good fit. And it was also really the only dojo that was like right by where I lived at the time. So I was kind of, I didn't really have much choice to to get into it. Um, But one of my friends at the time, he was uh, into what's called Thai boxing or Muay Thai. And um, he was probably the toughest guy I ever knew. And one day, he took me to a match. When I lived overseas, this all happened over there. And this is sort of like right before UFC and mixed martial arts became like a thing. And he took me to this match, and I'll never forget this. We're sitting, you know, you have the octagon, and we're all kind of sitting around. And the first contestant, he entered in, and he was wearing his karate uniform, and his gi. And so he walks into the ring, and when he gets into the ring, he starts like doing showy kicks and flashy jump kicks and spinning kicks and all that kind of stuff that looks really good. And then the other fighter came in, and he wasn't wearing a uniform. He was just wearing athletic shorts, and he was just standing off on his side, and he was just loosening his shoulders, cracking his neck, and just kind of getting ready for the fight. And once the bell rang, or the, the fight began, the guy in the uniform, like he went into a flurry of action, right, trying to... Uh, to kick the other guy and they kind of danced around a little bit trying to get like a feel for one another and the fighter in the karate uniform he tried to do like really flashy kicks and this other guy just took him down to the ground in a second and just pound, just punched him in the face a bunch of times and then he tapped out and the fight was over really really quickly right that showy stuff like it looks good in movies But fights in the real world don't work like they do in movies. Like you can't just punch a person like that in the face and they fall over and they're knocked out. That's that's not how it works. But their violent struggle was brief. And for one of them, really painful. And for the other one, not really, not really so much. But this came to my mind after I read the story of Jacob and Esau being born. And their struggles both in the womb and out of the room. Struggle marked them. And their own struggles with one another mirror our own struggles with God, with sin, and and with ourselves. So in the beginning of chapter 5, Abraham, of of Genesis, Abraham remarries after the death of Sarah, and he has a lot more children. And um, when he gets close to death, just like he did with Ishmael, he sends all of his children away. He gives them all gifts. You know, here's... A portion for you. But then he sends them all away and he gives everything to Isaac because Isaac is the son of the promise like we've been talking about. So Abraham finally passes away and he's buried with Sarah and Isaac is now the head of the family. He is now the patriarch, the, the, the heir of the promises made by God. And we know from the last chapter, Isaac loved Rebekah and was comforted by her after his mother had passed away. 
And now we see a struggle they have in that they are struggling to conceive a child. And we see this with Abraham and Sarah. And it's interesting, when you read the life of Isaac, and you read it along with the life of Abraham, you see how Isaac's life and some of the choices he makes parallel or mirror some of the dumb choices Abraham makes. Right? Remember little Abraham to the Pharaoh? Yeah, Sarah, this is not my wife. This is my sister. Remember that story? <laughs> if you're a wife, you're like, yes. Isaac does uh, the same thing uh, a little bit later on. Abraham digs wells. Isaac digs his own wells and also digs up wells of his father that had been, that had been filled in. But like Abraham and Sarah having difficulty conceiving, Isaac prays and God grants their prayers and she conceives. And we see in the text that Isaac's 60 years old, so it's been a little bit of time. But not only is she pregnant, she's pregnant with twins. And the twins are struggling inside of her. Now, the language used here in the Hebrew, it denotes that the babies are struggling against one another. Not necessarily struggling, trying to find space inside. But the struggle is between the two of them while they are still in the womb. So this is just the normal pains that are associated with, you know, moving unborn, unborn babies. And she asks the Lord, like, God, what the heck is going on inside me? This is really weird. And God says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. She gives birth to Esau, the firstborn, but he's gripped by the heel by Jacob, the secondborn. Almost as if Jacob's trying to keep him from being delivered first. And this will mark a struggle that will play itself out as they grow and mature. And there are a few things more primal than the struggle between brothers. And we see here Isaac and Rebecca making that mistake that I know no parent ever does. They each have their favorite kid. See, Shantae, she's pregnant, right? So we only have one right now. So I can, Isaac's definitely my favorite right now, but I have a friend of mine who keeps telling me, once you have a daughter, that changes everything, man, get ready. But they make that classic mistake that parents tell you never to do. They had a favorite kid. Isaac favored Esau and Rebecca favored Jacob. But interestingly, God tells Rebecca that older one, typically the one who would become the head of the family and inherit the bulk of the resources, the older one is actually going to serve the younger. And this is a reversal of the order of things. And it's part of a pattern that we see throughout Genesis and throughout scripture. So once they've grown, we see Esau, he's the outdoorsman type that all men wish that they could be. He's like, he's like the Stephen Ranella of the ancient world. And, and Isaac is more of the type to like stay at home and look after the business or help manage you know, the household. So Jacob prepares some food, kind of a little trap here. And Esau, he's exhausted from the hunt. He demands some. And he exaggerates, right? He's like, if I don't get any of this, I'm going to die. Give me this food right now or I'm going to die. And he's not going to die. We know he's not going to die. You have to go a long time without food before you die. It's an exaggeration. And Jacob says, sure, I'll give you some food. This is great. Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, sure. What good is the birthright? If I'm going to die of hunger, what good is that? to me. And this, dece this deception sets up the increase in deception that's going to happen at the end of Isaac's life, which will increase the animosity between them, the struggle between them. 
So before we get into dealing with struggle, let's look at some topology that we see here that we shouldn't miss before they continue. So in this story, you have the two children. You have Esau and you have Jacob, both of whom will grow up to be great. They will both grow up to be great. Jacob will become Israel. This is literally, right? Because remember in the Jacob story, just as you know, Jacob wrestles with his brothers and he wrestles you know, through his trickery with his, his relatives and everything, Jacob eventually wrestles with God. And Jacob has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And Esau, he's going to become the father of the Edomites. So we have this people of the promise and the people associated with that promise and those who are outside of the promise. And I think that we get a glimpse here of the relationship between the Jewish people and the church, right? The church comes after the Jewish people, but the church... Thank you. Wind, that's great. There we go. The church of, is constituted of more than just the Jews. The Gentiles are brought in and both together become the church, which Scripture says the, is the true Israel of God. So the younger becomes greater than the former. And we also can see in this story uh, Rebecca as being a type of, of Mary. Right? So just as, as in Rebecca's womb... The child of the covenant chosen by God will be the one through whom we'll have many sons and daughters and grow into a mighty people. So too, through Mary's womb, the promised son of God will come to redeem the world, which is why in Christian theology, right, we call Mary the one who bore God. He has come to his people to deliver them. And from this son, all people will be called to become part of God's covenant people. Let's talk a little bit about struggle for a few minutes. So we see at the end of the Jacob and Esau story, they actually, when they get older, they reconcile. And at the, later on, things are great. But right now, it doesn't seem to be very good. And you might think that you may have had naughty kids, right? Whenever my grandmother would visit us, we had to be sure not to bicker because even the slightest hint of bickering was enough to get my grandma to say, I'm going back to the hotel. See you later. I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> Families struggle and that can leave a mark. But we can't, I don't think, just moralize you know, the story like this and leave it there. Family struggles. So be nice to your relatives. Well, there's more to it than that. Let's, let's look a little, bit, uh, a little bit deeper. So let's talk a little bit about flesh and spirit. So... The main struggle we see here is typified by what Esau falls prey to, and that is our struggle with sin, our struggle between the flesh and the spirit. So just as Jacob and Esau struggle together, we could say Esau is typifying the flesh and Jacob the spirit. As they struggle together in the womb, we struggle within ourselves. And when Esau comes in from the field, maybe he didn't catch anything that day, he sees Jacob cooking, and that entices him. Maybe you've had a day like that, working outside in the heat of summer, and you go inside to get a glass of ice water and pour it on your head or just drink it down because your stomach is rumbling. There's nothing wrong with working hard and with being hungry when you're done or thirsty. But what Esau does here is, 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 is it's, there's something more going on here. 
So remember, as the eldest son, he's supposed to inherit the promises as the heir of Isaac and Abraham. But what does he do? The divine blessing given to him by God that would be his as the son of the promise, he trades it away for momentary physical satisfaction. He trades away his birthright. All the promises of God, everything that Abraham struggled for, right? Remember, God says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your name great. Look at the stars of the sky. Your descendants are going to be more than all of the stars in the sky. He promises that to Abraham and his descendants. And Esau takes everything that God had given Abraham, everything that God had given Isaac, and he treats it like a commodity that could be traded away for something to eat. The text ominously tells us Esau despised his birthright. And to him at the time, it doesn't really mean much until Jacob, through an act of trickery, receives it himself, right? And then when you fast forward to the story, he finally realizes the import of what he's done. And the New Testament talking about this says he tried to repent with tears, but essentially it was too late. It's only when Isaac is on his deathbed and he blesses Jacob, thinking Jacob is Esau, and Isaac receives the divine blessing that Esau realizes what he's lost. And he didn't lose it at that moment when Jacob tricked his blind, dying father. He lost it when he came in from the field and traded what was, should have been his for something to eat, a momentary indulgence. To trade the good gifts that God has given to us and to trade it for something else is a horrible thing to do. And it's basically a repetition of the sin committed by the first humans in the garden. And as St. Paul reminded us in today's Romans reading, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And when we refer to the flesh here, we're not referring to our physical bodies, right? Because the Christian tradition has always upheld that our body is good. It is God's creation. It is God's good creation. And this flies in the face of a lot of modern theology where the body is something to be escaped or something to be discarded. An earth suit, I've heard people call it. Like the real you is kind of buried inside your physical body and the whole goal of the Christian life is to escape your body. But as we just heard from St. Paul's reading to the Romans, he said here in verse 11, if the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, this same spirit will give life to your mortal body. The resurrection. Here, flesh means, according to St. John Chrysostom, a life that is carnal and worldly, serving self-indulgence and extravagance to the full. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, flesh refers to people or things who share the corruptibility and mortality of the world, and often enough, and certainly here, the rebellion of the world. So when we live according to the desires of our mortal, corruptible nature, serving self-indulgence like Esau, we cannot please God. And we run the danger of cutting ourselves off from God and from His promises. Sacrosasm said, for to give the crown is God's prerogative, but to retain it is your responsibility. And here's the thing, though. As Christians, 
What we have been given we've, is so precious, but God has also given us the resources to resist this. God doesn't just task us with something that seems impossible. He actually enables us to do it through the gift of his indwelling spirit. As Paul said in Romans here, he says, remember, the spirit of life has set you free. Esau did not inherit the promise because he despised his inheritance and he gave it up for materialistic goods. And when we do the same thing, when we turn to sin, we turn more and more towards our corruptible flesh that is waiting to be redeemed. And the more we do that, the easier it gets until one day we don't care anymore. And we wind up having traded our eternal destiny and union with God for nothing. And what's so dangerous, brothers and sisters, is we might not even realize that we, that's, that's where we are. And we might not even realize that we don't even care anymore until it's too late, like Esau did. So that's our big struggle. The struggle between, in ourselves, between that and, and, and sin. But then we also struggle, brothers and sisters, in other places, too, and in other ways. And we struggle with God, we struggle with sin, and we struggle with ourselves. And one of the great things about life in Christ is that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. But God is also reconciling us to one another. Right, So the struggle that marks our fallen world, the struggle that manifests itself in many different ways, that struggle that we see in our world is struggle that God has healed. And we don't have to live as people who struggle against one another anymore because Christ has healed that. Which is why, brothers and sisters, the message of the cross is so important because outside of Christ, outside the message of the cross, that struggling between one another will never be overcome and it will never be redeemed. Never. And sometimes we also, sometimes we even struggle with God. And we'll see this later on in the life of Jacob where he actually physically wrestles against an angel, which the angel of the Lord, which turns out to be God himself. And sometimes we struggle against God. Like in the story, Rebecca says, why is this happening to me? I don't understand what's going on inside of me. A lot of times we will struggle with God. Some of us, some of us might have anger towards God for something bad that happened to us. Some of us might be upset with God because we didn't get the promotion we thought we deserved, or we didn't get the job that we wanted, or we didn't get the house that we wanted, or God didn't choose in his providence to touch and to heal a family member who wind up getting really sick or passing away or something like that. And we struggle sometimes against God. We struggle against God. But the beautiful thing is, is that in Christ, that struggle, we are given... <laughs> We're given the tools, we're given the resources, the spiritual resources, where that struggle can turn to peace. So that struggle can turn to peace. I'll leave us with this one final thing. St. John Chrysostom once again said, the grace of the Spirit put a stop to the war by slaying sin 
and making the contest light for us, putting a victor's crown on our heads at the beginning and then drawing us into the struggle with enough help to win it. So what he says here is so powerful because what he says is the spirit puts a stop to the war by slaying sin. So makes the contest easier for us. And so at the beginning, we wear the victor's crown, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Because you don't get the trophy until you win at the end. Once you cross the finish line and have everybody else, then you get the trophy. Then in the ancient world, you get the, 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 the wreath on your head, like the Olympics or whatever. But what the Spirit does is, by the Spirit dwelling in us, by our being brought into Christ, the victor's crown, the trophy, we get it at the beginning of the race. And then the Spirit draws us into that race, into that struggle, and helps us win it. And helps us win it. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory, together with his Father who is from everlasting, and his all-holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help or food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.